following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. So we're going through these, these verses, and primarily, as we've been sharing, uh, it's talking about uh, the truth that Jesus is... Uh, is God's ultimate revelation. It, it says God the Father spoke to us in a son, meaning in, in the, the, the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and we, we've mentioned that uh, the speaking comes in first uh, uh, God's, God's speaking to us. Uh, Jesus is God's spoken word. Uh, and then last week and this week, we're looking at uh, Jesus' revelation of God in what he does. The, all that Jesus did and does and will do is a revelation of something of God's character and nature. And then lastly, next week, we will look at how Jesus is a revelation of what uh, of who God is. It's relational in his very being. He reveals God the Father. And so the, the big theme of this, these four verses is that Jesus is the ultimate and full and complete and final revelation of the Father. Um, so uh, we're, we're looking at last week in this at how Jesus reveals the Father and what he does. And we looked last week that uh, Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Huge truths that, that Jesus is the one who brought this universe into existence and he is day by day, moment by moment, sustaining it by his great power. <clears throat> so we want to look at the other two things that it says he does in this passage, and that is that he makes purification for sins, and then he uh, is seated, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. <clears throat> and primarily we'll be looking at uh, this idea of, of cleansing or cleaning, of making purification for sins. Uh, I used to, I don't much anymore, but I used to travel quite a bit and uh, do teaching in India. And on one of my trips there, uh, if, if any of you have been to India, you, you will relate to this. There's just... Levels of poverty that uh, you just don't see in Thailand, other places of the world. But um, and I was in, I think it was Chennai. I forget now where, but in this massive city, very busy, crowded street, just people everywhere. And we were as, as normal, stuck in this traffic jam, in this taxi, just cars packed everywhere. And uh, if you've been to India, you know that like there's no space between you and the cars and the people. So you're in a car and like right here are people walking by and going by and standing by. So like if you roll down your window, you can like, you know, pick their pocket or <laughs> give them a hug. I mean, they're just that close. And uh, that was kind of the scene. And we're parked in this traffic jam at this stoplight or intersection. And I see this girl, probably about 10 or 11 years old. And uh, she was this beautiful Indian girl, but wearing uh, the most filthy clothes, I, I mean, it's just un, unimaginable. And it was clear that this girl had, the, the, this dress kind of thing she was wearing had probably never, ever been washed. And it wasn't just that she'd been wearing it for a few days or maybe even a few weeks, but I mean, clearly she had been wearing this dress for months or perhaps years. And it looked as if it would take off, it would, if she would take it off, it would just stand all on its own. It was that crusted uh, with just filth and, and grime. And right there in the middle of the street with thousands of people all around everywhere, she squats down and pees right there in front of God and everybody. Uh, kind of typical in India. Uh, and I just thought, 
Uh, my heart just went out to this, this girl because it was clearly a, a sign of her poverty. Right? Somebody who's wearing clothes like that is not somebody who has money. It's, it's, just, it's just a mark, wearing, wearing visibly a mark of her extreme, extreme poverty. Uh, but what was great about all this was this girl uh, was too young and too innocent to really realize her shame. She was just as happy as could be. She was smiling and just bouncing around like this little butterfly, oblivious to really her state in life. Um, sadly, I'm sure it's, you know, she grew up and, and became aware of, of her poverty. And, and we know that you know, if you see homeless adults uh, living in that kind of squalor and filth, we, we, we see on their faces more the shame of their status and their position. Um, and, and the reality is that uh, part of what it means to be a human being is we, we really do tend to value cleanliness, right? We, something about people universally, we have this idea that being clean is a good thing. And I didn't do an inspection this morning, but just glancing across the, cl- the crowd here, you, got, you guys look pretty good, right? You look fairly respectable. Um, you showed up this morning with clean clothes on. And your faces are washed, or at least there's not like blotches of dirt on them, right? Um, and, and, you know, when we see somebody, it, it does stand out when we see somebody who is dressed in filthy rags because it is a mark of either one of two things, either they're super poor or they're extremely lazy, right? And so it doesn't reflect on, well on their character to see somebody who's unkept and, and unclean, um, I'm pretty sure no one got up this morning and looked in your closet full of clean clothes and thought, ah, I'm not going to wear clean clothes today. And you went to your dirty clothes bin and you dug through your dirty clothes to find the most stained, dirty shirt you, or dress you could find. Anybody do that? Going, you know, why would I wear clean clothes when I could wear dirty ones? Now, when I was seven, that was me. Okay, that was me. But for most of us who are adults, uh, grown up, you know, there's a sense of no... Going out in public, we need to look clean. Um, well, what Jesus talks about in, his, in, in Hebrews uh, 1.3, it says that Jesus, uh, our, our great high priest, makes purification for sins. And the idea of purification really has this idea of making us clean. Um, and Jesus is not specifically named here as high priest, but uh, later in the book this becomes a major theme that's developed. And it's really implied even in these first, first verses that it's, it's a picture of Jesus as our high priest doing a work of cleansing us, of making purification. And it's language that comes very much out of the Old Testament. And the book of Hebrews, as we will see, connects a lot with what happens in the Old Testament, especially around the worship in the tabernacle and the temple. And so this idea of making purification is very much an Old Testament idea or concept and it really related to this idea of being ceremonially, I have a hard time saying this word, ceremonially unclean. Okay, we'll say it this way, ritually defiled, <laughs> easier. This ritual defilement, that there's something about us that, um, that's made dirty and unclean. And what's interesting is this could happen to us in any number of ways, uh, but what it did is it disqualified you from, from going to the temple and worshiping. If you were unclean, you could not go to church. You couldn't show up until that was taken care of, until you were made clean, <clears throat> until that defilement was, was removed. Um, so in order to draw near to God's presence required clean, this, this ceremonial cleanliness, this 
removing this defilement. And any, it's, what else is interesting is any number of things could, could make you unclean. Um, for example, touching any dead body, whether of an animal or of a human, made you unclean. <coughs> um, <coughs> touching a leper made you unclean. And of course, being a leper made you unclean. Uh, we see this even in the New Testament when Jesus uh, is walking down the street and the woman who has had a discharge of blood for many, many years comes up and touches Jesus. That discharge of blood would have made her unclean continually and exempt from worship at the temple. So what's fascinating about this is that any contact with sin or its consequences resulted in this, this uncleanness, this ritual defilement. Um, not, not just directly, but even, even just touching the consequences. And that's what sickness, like leprosy, and death represented here. Uh, you, not that you sin, not that you died, but coming in contact with the, the results, the consequences of sin, brought a stain on your life. Um, of course, the stain wasn't just on your clothing or skin, but it went into the very heart and soul of a person and required spiritual cleansing. Um, and, and so before the worshiper could come into God's presence, you had to go through this process of being made clean, of being cleansed. And it was the job of the priest to do this. And depending on how you got defiled, how you got unclean, uh, there were different prescriptions for how you could be made clean. But all of them included some form of something dying. Some sacrifice was made. And either by means of the blood or, or sometimes the ashes of the, of the sacrifice were mixed with water. And the blood and the, this mixture would be sprinkled on you with, with hyssop or with branches. And uh, sometimes with scarlet wool. Very symbolic of the need for cleansing. As you go and the priest would sprinkle you. And that represented this washing away of this, this ritual defilement. This uncleanness. Uh, so that's really the backdrop of what's happening and what's described in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 3. Uh, and, and we have very similar imagery or concepts in our, a lot of our older hymns. I'm not sure about newer ones. I tried to think of some. But old hymns like washed in the blood, right? Washed in the blood. This need for cleansing. Uh, there is a fountain. Um, uh, I don't know, I can't remember the words off the top of my head, but right, you're, you're dunked in this fountain and you are cleansed, you are washed. Uh, whiter than snow. Again, this song depicting this picture of purification. So what we want to think about today a little bit is what exactly does this work of purification involve through Jesus? Um, and, and, and specifically, I want to explore a little bit, does washing, is it really the same thing as forgiveness? And a lot of times we, we look at these words <clears throat> and we think that all the words pertaining to our salvation are all synonyms that mean exactly the same thing. Uh, but I, I would suggest that, uh, as we'll see in a moment, that cleansing uh, highlights an aspect of our salvation that it's really different from forgiveness. Um, it is not just another picture of God making us right and holy through the blood of the cross. And of course, what Jesus did on the cross, his blood, is the basis and foundation of all of our salvation. Right? We are saved through the blood of Jesus. Uh, but I think it's important for us to realize that his uh, saving work is, involves a lot more than oftentimes just the simple truth of forgiveness. Uh, so really, what is 
What is involved in this idea of being washed? And how is it different from forgiveness or sanctification? (coughs) My throat needs some cleansing here. All right, what is forgiveness? Well, to, to get the full picture of this, we need to look a little bit and think about what it means to be unclean. And we, we, we've introduced it a little bit from the Old Testament. But let's get a little bit deeper into this of what it means for us as, as, as Christians, as, as people living in the New Testament era, for us to be unclean. Um, and, and, and how does it compare this idea of guilt versus dirty, being guilty versus being dirty? Uh, well, first, let's talk a little bit about guilt. Uh, guilt, of course, is the result of sin. And, and, and as we will see, so is unclean. They're both a, a result of sin, but they're two different results. Uh, guilt is the result of sin when we disobey God. And in our disobedience, we bring an offense against God. We wrong him. Uh, and, and it doesn't matter who, humanly speaking, that we sin against. It could be our friends or our family or our spouse. But ultimately, when we sin, it's a violation against God himself. We wrong the God who created us. So that's why in Psalm 51, David can write about his sin with Bathsheba. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And he's praying to God and he says, against you and you only have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight. One of the results of sin is that it damages our relationship and our standing before God. Right? We, we sever that relationship. Uh, be, and it brings upon us guilt. Right? And in this sense, guilt is a legal term that means we, we've done something wrong and we deserve punishment. Right? We're guilty before God. Uh, so it's this legal term expressing our standing before God as condemned. As guilty. Um, so, so we'll see that guilt and being unclean are not the same thing. Same cause, sin. But guilt has to do with our legal standing before God. And removing guilt is something that has to be done in heaven to bring God's forgiveness or His pardon on what we have done to wrong Him. Um, But what's interesting, when you look in the Old Testament, this idea of cleansing and and being unclean, you don't actually have to do something wrong in order to be made unclean. Touching a dead body wasn't a sin. In fact, if if some family member of yours passed away, it was part of your job and responsibility to to prepare the body and to, to, to bury them, right? This was something that was required and necessary. So it couldn't be a sin, and yet it left you unclean. Uh, all you had to do is come in contact with the effects of sin and you were left defiled. So the reality is you can be completely free of guilt and still be unclean because they are different things. Right? They're different things. Uh, to be unclean means to be defiled or dirty. And the idea is this, that sin, sin has extremely broad-ranging and devastating effects. So not only does it affect our relationship with God, not only does it bring a wrong or offense against Him, um, but its effects also touch us inwardly. Something happens in us when we sin. Uh, and so broad and, and damaging are its effects that it can, if, it can touch and affect even innocent bystanders. 
Right? Just being near sin and coming in contact with it rubs off on us and makes us unclean. Uh, kind of like secondhand smoke. You know, you don't have to be the one smoking the cigarette. If you're near it, uh, science you know, research shows you can you can be affected by that smoke. Um, that's how sin is. It's it's its impact is far reaching, even on those who do not bear the direct guilt of the sinful action. And and, and this uncleanness is ultimately a stain. Uh, it's pictured throughout Scripture as a stain that ruins all that it touches. Um, have you ever stained your clothes, right? There's a, there's a difference we know between a stain and just plain basic dirt. Like you got your dirt that that you know, you know, my, my shirt got dirty, I'm going to throw it in the wash and it's going to get clean. But then there's a stain, right? Now I happen to be kind of the, like one thing I do really well, one of my gifts is, is staining things, right? I'm quite good at this. And part of it's because I like to fix things. I like to work with wood. And so I'm constantly staining my hands with paint and, you know, stuff, glue and all kinds of things, staining my clothes. And I got to tell this story. This is just a funny story uh, of a, ma- a major stain. This is a major stain. Uh, several uh, weeks ago, I uh, came home late and Denise said, it was really late. It was like 10 o'clock at night, past my bedtime. And then he said, um, you know, I need to I use my bike tomorrow and the tire is low. Can you pump up the tire on my bike? I said, yeah, no problem. So I went down and I, because I like to fixing, I, I like tools and I have, I have all the right tools. And so I down in my car park, I have a uh, air compressor. So I don't have to go to Jet Jiffy. I don't have to do the hand pump thing. I've got electricity. I've got power, right? I can, I can blow things up to, you know, ex- explosive proportions. So I uh, got out my air compressor. And just the day before I had been using it, and I uh, checked the oil, and it seemed low to me, and so I got some oil, and I put oil in, and I added oil, and there's a little plug, and at the bottom of this plug is a little stick, and I assume it's like a car engine, it's like a dipstick, and you fill up the oil until it touches the stick. So I put like a whole quart of oil in this thing, and I thought, wow, it's really low. So the next night, I am... uh, plug in the air compressor and it fires up and it's rattling away, waiting for it to pressure up. And I'm standing there waiting for it to get enough pressure. And all of a sudden, the thing, the the little stopper, the little rubber stopper, shoots out like a bullet and it explodes oil everywhere. (laughs) Mostly on me because I'm standing right in front of it. Right? Um, There was a major stain, right? All my clothes, me, everything, the floor, the concrete, the whole compressor was sitting in this major pool of oil. Um, 10 o'clock at night. Joyful times right there. I'm telling you what. Um, and this is what happens when it gets into, when a stain like that gets into the cloth, what happens? Right? It penetrates deep into the fabric, into the fiber, into your skin, and it's hard to get rid of, right? It is not easily removed. And in fact, sometimes it's impossible to remove. I'm pretty sure those clothes were ruined forever. Um, and, and the result is it is ruined, right? You're not wearing those clothes to church anymore, right? You're not going on a date thinking, where, where can I find that, that blouse that's got that big black egg blotch on it, right? No, they're ruined. They're useless. They're, they're, they're for the trash. Um, and that, that's this picture of, of sin, right? Sure, it affects our relationship with God. It makes us guilty before Him. But it puts a stain on us, in us. In our very heart and soul, it leaves a mark. Uh, and it, it really is this picture that it ruins us, right? It makes us unfit and unworthy. Um, 
We are defiled and we are corrupted by the effects of sin. It damages our very soul and contaminates our heart. Um, and it's just it's interesting that, that it's, it's not just my own sin that can do this. Right? So what exactly are some of the stains? What, what exactly is it happens in my soul or my heart that's damaged, that bears this mark of, of, of sin? Well, I think there's three things. First, uh, I think it's a picture of shame, the shame that comes with sin. Right? We know that the person wearing filthy clothes bears a certain shame of their poverty or their laziness. Right? Even like that little girl I described, she may not have known her shame, but there's a shame that she's, uh, she's not what a human being was intended to be. Right? Her life is far below the dignity that was due her. Right? And so, so, so sin brings on us shame. Uh, now, in our, in our world we live in now, <clears throat> a lot of people are not very ashamed of their sin. And I'm just constantly reminded, and it's just sometimes startling, how proud people are of their sin. People make videos of it now, and they talk about it, and they, they put it out there about how proud they are that they live these godless, immoral lifestyles. And uh, the secret, I figured out the secret of this. Like if you want to know how to, um, you know, not be ashamed of sin, you just give it different labels, right? You just give it a different title. So instead of immorality, it's sexual freedom, right? Yay, let's champion that, right? You can make posters, you can wear t-shirts, right? And you don't have to be ashamed anymore. And certainly uh, our, our, our world is doing that, um, but I think they're kind of like the story of the emperor's new clothes. You remember the story of the emperor's new clothes? These two tailors who were really super lazy and didn't want to do any work were ordered to come to the king. And the king said, I want you to make me some clothes. And because they were lazy and they were bums and they didn't actually do any work, they went home and they thought, what are we going to do? He wants us to actually make something. And they had an idea. They said, what we'll do is we'll just convince the king that, um, you know, that they, there's these invisible clothes that only worthy people can see, right? And so the king thinks he's wearing these clothes that they made that are so special that only worthy people can see their brilliance and beauty. But actually, he's just walking around naked, right? Well, that's kind of the foolishness of our world, right? They think they have convinced themselves that there's no shame, but it just adds to their foolishness, right? It only adds to their shame that they are living in denial of uh, the corruption of their life. Um, sin brings shame on us, right? And we, we know that. For those of us who are sensitive, who know God's word, we know that uh, we are ashamed when we, when we fail, when we say things that hurt other people, when we think and do things that we know are not Christ-honoring. We, we, we know there is a shame that comes with that. And not only to us, but to those around us, a husband who's addicted to internet pornography brings shame on himself, but also on his wife. Uh, when a child rebels against his parents, he brings dishonor on himself, but also to his parents. Uh, if a pastor or Christian leader falls into adultery or some other huge sin, right, the entire church suffers the humiliation of that sin, the shame of it. Right? That's, that's one of the effects, one of the stains of, of sin. Another of its effects is that uh, uh, 
when we when we sin, uh, we feel this sense of condemnation. Um, shame is really uh, the condemnation we feel coming from others, those outside of us, from society and the world. Right? We feel embarrassed before them by our behavior. Uh, but condemnation is our own conscious speaking against us. Right? When you've done wrong, when you've sinned, don't you just hate that stab of conscience where we feel this guilt deep inside, where we know we've done wrong and we've been um, tainted by sin. And our conscience does what? It condemns us. You idiot. You're so stupid. You're such a failure. Right? And we feel the pain of those uh, condemning words of our own conscience. Uh, in Psalms 32, also another psalm where David's describing his experience after his sin with Bathsheba and the torment of it all. He writes this. He says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Right? His own soul was consuming him uh, with torment because of his sin. Um, the voice of inward con- condemnation and this sense of failure uh, come from this stain upon our soul, right? And we're all very aware of that. Um, third thing, uh, as, as shame and condemnation pile up upon us when we feel this shame from the out, uh, what's around us and we feel this condemnation from within, the, the, the final result of all that is it leaves us feeling unworthy. Uh, we have, uh, it comes upon us a sense of spiritual insecurity, Uh, before man, but especially before God. And that unworthiness is not unjustified, right? That was the picture in the Old Testament. If you were defiled, if you were dirty, you were unworthy to come into God's presence, right? You had to be clean first. Um, Going back to kind of our human illustration, if a a homeless person who's wearing just filthy, uh, dirty rags, right, they probably wouldn't feel real comfortable going into a fancy hotel and hanging out in the lobby, Right? A person like that would feel very, very uncomfortable going into a nice restaurant and sitting down and expecting to being served. And in fact, uh, they could be asked to leave. Right? Uh, how much less would they feel unworthy to stand in the presence of a king or a president or somebody important? And that's the, that's the, the consequences of sin. It leaves us feeling dirty and unworthy to be in God's presence. We've probably all felt that, Right? The sense that, God, I am not worthy to to come before you. I am not worthy to pray to you. I'm not worthy to be your child or to be in your presence. Um, And it breeds in us this deep sense of insecurity and loneliness as we feel unworthy even before our fellow human beings, much less before God. Um, Now, of course, many people, Christians and otherwise, compensate compensate for these deep-seated feelings of shame and unworthiness by trying to prove that they really are worthy, right? That would be one way to deal with this. We know we're guilty. We know we feel shame. Our conscience condemns us. Um, So what we do to overcome it instead of following what the Bible says is to put on this mask that really I am very worthy, right? And pride gets in there and, and we try to overcompensate our weakness and our shame by proving to the world that we're not as bad as we know we are, right? And so you see this all around people who are bolstering their self-image and their confidence and their uh, respect, right? And demanding that people admire them based on their accomplishments. 
But Scripture says that's all just an act, a show to cover up the deep sense of unworthiness and shame and condemnation people feel inside. Um, the solution to this is not to get better self-confidence, right? To overcome this is not that we convince ourselves we're really better than we are. No, the, the, the cure, the Bible says, is we need washing, right? We are unclean, and the, the only solution is to remove the stain that sin has left. Uh, so how do we do that? Uh, well, Romans 1.3 says that Jesus has done it, right? He, after making purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty. Jesus, as the high priest, has made purification for us. And, of course, we know he did that in his blood. There is power in the blood to wash us and to cleanse us. Um, for, for all you moms, who, who, especially with boys, who come home with terribly stained clothes, and you're constantly stuck with this challenge, okay, how do I get this out? Because we don't have money to keep buying this kid new clothes every time he goes out and wears them, right? So uh, we become experts at figuring out how to get stains out. And there's all these formulas, and now we have Google. We can ask Siri and find out, you know, how do I get this out of clothes? And it'll give you these great solutions. Uh, the trick is we have to have the right agent, the right thing that will dissolve the stain. And uh, if you don't have the right agent, no matter how much you scrub, it's not going to do any good, right? It's not going to have any effect. Well, the Bible is clear that there's only one thing capable of removing the stain of sin, and that is blood. Uh, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, okay? no erasing, no removal of sin. And there is no cleansing for the soul. Um, but Jesus, by his blood, has made purification for sins. Um, and this is going to be uh, the introduction, really, of a major theme in the book of Jesus' role as a high priest and all that he does to bring cleansing. And we'll see this uh, unfold throughout the book. Uh, but enough to say now that it's the role of the priest to sprinkle us with the blood to cleanse us. And Jesus does that. Um, he is the high priest who comes, and when we come before him, sprinkles us with, with the washing of the blood that, that removes the stain of guilt. Uh, and it doesn't say this here, but the other thing that we also know is that he's not only the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. That he sprinkles us not with the blood of a lamb or a bull or a goat, but it's his very own blood by which he sprinkles our heart and soul and brings about its cleansing. It is his blood that washes away the sin and cleanses us, as we know. Um, so the result is this, that we no longer need to bear the shame of sin and its effects. Okay, the result of the cross is that the shame and the condemnation and the unworthiness that, that are the blemish of sin upon us right, uh, are removed by the blood of Jesus. Uh, scripture talks about us being dressed in, in garments that are white as snow that have been cleansed and washed. In Revelations, it says that they, they wash their garments in the blood of the Lamb. Right? So it's this picture of standing before God cleansed without any stain of sin upon us. Uh, there is no condemnation upon us. Um, because Jesus has removed every effect of sin, it silences the voice of conscience. Uh, Romans 8 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, not only from God, but it should mean from yourself. Right? 
Are you condemning yourself because of sin? Right, something's missing here, right? Because he said there should be no condemnation for those who have experienced this washing and cleansing effect. Um, Romans 8, 33 and 34 puts it this way. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who shall condemn you? Would God who justifies? Well, no, he's the one who sent the son, so he wouldn't condemn you. How about Jesus? Uh, would he condemn you? No, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Right? If God the Father won't condemn you, and if Jesus won't condemn you, should you condemn yourself? Well, that voice should be silenced, right? Because God himself does not condemn us. So there's no shame and there's no condemnation. And the result is that we are now worthy to stand in God's presence. Just as in the Old Testament, once they experienced cleansing, they were worthy. They were given permission and access to come into the, temp- into the temple, into the tabernacle, before the holy place, very holy, holy, holy place of God and stand in His presence. Right? They didn't have to feel in any way unworthy. Hebrews 10.22 puts it this way, Let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 4 tells us we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Right? So here's the thing. That's the work that Jesus' blood has accomplished for us. So why is it I still feel so condemned? Right? Why is it so often I feel guilty? Why is it my conscience won't shut up and it keeps condemning me? Uh, why is it I still feel so unworthy and insecure before God and before man? Um, well, there is, there is a work of appropriating this purifying process of Jesus. Right? Jesus has done the work. He's completed it. Um, and it's very clear that there's nothing we do to, to cleanse ourselves. Okay, there's no penance necessary. Right? You don't have to go climb on your hands and knees at the top of Doisy Tap right, to earn the cleansing. Jesus' blood is sufficient. It's enough. It covers everything so that you don't have to worry about it. But there is a process to claim it or appropriate it for ourselves. And the sad reality is that for too many Christians who are, who are living day by day with this shame and this condemnation and this burden of unworthiness, is they haven't, they haven't taken the spot removal of Jesus' blood and applied it to their own soul. Uh, and it doesn't mean they are, they're not saved, right? Uh, if you put your faith in Christ, right, his blood is effective. You are not guilty before God. In God's eyes, you are forgiven and you are spotless and clean. But the issue is that um, you haven't applied its cleansing effect to your own heart and your own soul. And if you struggle with these feelings and if the enemy is bringing into you feelings of condemnation and guilt and shame, right, you need to experience the cleansing work of Jesus. Um, this completed work that Jesus has done for you. So how do you do that? Well, I think there's three things to appropriating uh, this washing compound to your soul. 
First thing is we need understanding. Uh, we need to know that it's available for us. One of the reasons we live uh, trapped in guilt and condemnation and shame is we're unaware of the effects of Jesus' blood in cleansing us. Um, we, we see it only in terms of heavenly forgiveness, not of inward washing and cleansing. First uh, John 1.7 puts it this way, If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Right? The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. What does it mean to walk in the light as He is in the light? Well, it means we need to live in the truth and the knowledge of what Jesus has accomplished for us. Right? We need to live in this understanding that uh, Jesus' blood not only accomplished forgiveness in heaven, but it accomplished cleansing and washing in my heart and soul here and now. He's removed all of the stain and consequences of sin. Um, <clears throat> It's impossible for us to experience its cleansing power if we're oblivious that it's available for us. So we need this daily awareness. We need to walk in the light and the truth of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Um, second thing we need is we need to practice daily and regular confession. Uh, John continues in, in 1 John 1, 7-9. In verse 8 he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And here it is again. And to what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, first problem is that we will not experience cleansing and the freedom of all that it brings if we live in denial about our own sin. That was David's experience when he was hiding from his sin. Um, there's two causes to this. First, it could be that we uh, just deny or justify our sin, right? We relabel it uh, as the world's gotten so good at, right? That's not really sin. It's a lifestyle. <laughs> it's a choice, right? It's, God's not doesn't have a problem with that. Um, the other problem, though, is that we, we really uh, have not allowed Scripture to shine its x-ray vision on our life and highlight um, the, the sins lurking deep within. Uh, it goes like this. We think, well, you know, I haven't committed adultery lately. <laughs> Maybe ever, hopefully. I, I, haven't, I haven't murdered anybody. Um, and, I, and I really haven't even lied. What sins are there, right? You ever feel that way? It's like you feel like you're a pretty good person. Well, if you're there... Right? And, and John says, if you're this person, there's a problem because you're deceiving yourself. You're not walking in the light. The truth is not in you. What you need to do is you need to put your life under the magnifying glass of Scripture. And as Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Here's the painful reality of this one. Maybe you're not committing adultery. Maybe you're not lying. Maybe you haven't even like, got really angry lately, right? But uh, what about your good deeds? 
Are your good deeds your own self-righteous effort to prove how good you are to God? I don't know that. Only Scripture and the Holy Spirit can illumine the motives of your heart. And the reality is, you know, I can be a preacher and I can preach the word and I can do all kinds of Christian ministry in, in, in the name of the flesh. And it's sin. Right? It's sin because it's not walking in obedience. It's not doing it in the power of the Spirit. Right? It's not just the external things that are, you know, the, the Ten Commandments of sin, right? It's the thoughts and intentions of the heart and mind, the deep secrets, the pride, the selfishness, the, the foolishness right, of our life. Um, if we think we have no sin, we need to put our life under the magnifying glass of Scripture. And believe me, it doesn't take long. And Scripture will start pointing out, okay, and if that doesn't work, just ask your wife. Okay, that's a shortcut. (laughs) Just ask your wife or your husband or your children. They'll tell you, right? Uh, Third thing. All right, so we we need understanding. We, We need confession. Thirdly, we need faith, right? We need to believe that it's true. That what the Bible tells us about, uh, first of all, we need to believe what the Bible tells us about the sinfulness of our human condition. We need to, we need to believe the things that the Bible points out in our lives that are, that are dishonoring to God. But also we need to believe the promises it makes about the adequacy and sufficiency of Jesus' blood. Right? That it is sufficient to remove all the effects of sin that it's guilt and shame and condemnation, that everything, its stain is washed away and we are clean before God because of the blood of Jesus. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. It's right for God to forgive our sins. That means to cancel out its guilt, that we are no longer an offense against Him. Right? He deals with the guilt side of it. But also He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's what he does in us as he takes the stain of guilt and he washes it away. Right? And he moves from us the condemnation and the, the shame, the unworthiness. Right? We have to have faith that his blood is enough. We don't have to beat ourselves up. We don't have to do some kind of penance. Right? Right? We don't have to walk around with this constant sense of unworthiness. We're compensating for the unworthiness by trying to prove to everybody around us how good we are. Right? We can have a true humility that knows, yeah, we messed up. And we constantly mess up. But God's grace and the blood of Jesus is greater than all my sin. And it is a constant flow, a constant fountain welling up in us, continually washing and cleansing us so that when we receive it by faith, We're clean, continually cleansed and washed uh, from every effect of sin as we confess and submit our heart and life to him. Um, One last thing as we close that uh, must be said about this work of Jesus making purification for our sins. And that is this idea of Jesus' enthronement. Uh, Hebrews 1.3 connects Jesus' work of making purification with his sitting at the right hand of majesty on high. And linguistically and in every way, these are, these are 
connected and inseparable in this passage. He says, after, okay, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The main verb here is the verb, uh, he sat down. Right, so the phrase, he makes purification for sins, is subordinate. It's connected to and under this idea of sitting down. And, and they're linked together. And they're sequential. Right, he says, so the first thing Jesus had to do is make purification for sins. It was only after he had done that that he could then uh, ascend to heaven, you know, raise from the dead, ascend to heaven, and be seated at the, at the, at the, maj- the place of majesty on high. And, and that's a picture of the throne of God. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, a place of authority and power, uh, a place where he could rule and have dominion. Jesus is in the highest place of authority and power, ruling and bringing everything under his dominion and control and power. Uh, But what's amazing here, and, and this is a theme throughout the book of Hebrews as well, is that these two things are intricately connected. Jesus' death on the cross and his work of making purification for your sins and his ruling on high are inseparable truths that go together. And the reason is that the only reason Jesus is worthy to rule is that he was worthy to die. What's amazing in these few verses, uh, verses 1 through 4, we've seen this, that it gives seven amazing descriptions about the Son of God, right? About Jesus, that he is the Son of God, that he is the ultimate revelation of God, that God spoke in his Son, that he is both the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. We talked about this last week. It's incredible, the power and majesty of the Son who holds the whole universe together. Uh, We'll look next week and see how he is the very glory and exact representation of God's character. And yet, none of these things ultimately qualify him to reign. None of that was enough. Being creator and sustainer of the universe did not ultimately qualify him to sit on the throne at the right hand of God. What qualified him is this, that he died on the cross for you and I. Right? That's what qualifies him to rule. Not because he's powerful, but because he's a God who loves you and I and gave himself up for us. Um, unlike any king in the world, right? a king who sacrificed himself out of his great love for you and I, And that's why Scripture says he is worthy to reign, worthy to sit on that throne. In in Revelations, when when John stood in in the throne room of heaven, and he had this amazing vision of of heaven and and of the future and of God's final judgment and the end of the world, Uh, it's amazing his description there of Jesus, right? Right? Uh, Hebrews, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 5, verse 6 says this, And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. He sees there by the throne in heaven this lamb as though it had been slain. And a few verses later in verse 9 it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, 
and language and people and nation. <clears throat> and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. But then notice what happens. It says, And then I looked and I heard around the throne of the, uh, and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. See, Jesus' death not only washes away your sin, but it's what makes Him uniquely worthy to reign over all of heaven and earth. And certainly worthy of our highest praise and adoration. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. He says, The grace which has provided a remedy for the defilement of sin, the uncleanness of sin, by a life freely offered up to God on our behalf, calls for a sense of personal indebtedness which the contemplation of divine activity on a cosmic scale would ne- could never evoke. In other words, it's way cool that God like made the whole universe and that Jesus sustains it all, but it's nothing compared to the truth that he died uh, to make purification for our sins. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.